You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. What do staff want from their job? That's an important question for any business owner or HR manager to ask themselves, especially during the current horticulture and landscape industry staff shortage crisis. In this episode, you'll learn why workplace culture is the key to retaining the staff that you've fought so hard to recruit, and how to make your workplace culture better so that you stop losing great staff members even if your profit margins don't allow for a wage increase. Jay Worth is the host of the Green Industry Perspectives podcast and is the marketing manager at SingleOps, a landscape business software based out of North America. You might remember him from episode 131, They're Not Replaceable Widgets. Welcome back to the show, Jay. How you going, mate? I'm doing great. How are you? Really good. Thank you, bro. So today we're talking about workplace culture, and I think that probably a good place to start is how does workplace culture affect employee retention and job satisfaction? I think, um, and I don't know if this holds true in Australia, but in the States, there's, there's a saying here that's very popular and says people don't quit jobs, they quit their bosses. Mm. And, um, I think that's only true to a certain extent. I think, um, your boss plays a huge role in it, but I think that, um, your boss is also responsible for setting the culture. So if you have an owner or a manager, like, like a good manager can make, um, bad or, or, or mediocre workplace culture, uh, bearable and even fun. Um, but just if you're listening to this and you're not sure and you're and you're trying to decide if this is worthwhile listening to, just think about the best jobs you've ever had, the most satisfied you've ever been in your career and what made it that way. What was the biggest thing? It was the relationships. Mm. When those relationships are with your boss or your employer and they're incredibly uh, supportive and satisfying, you want to keep working for that person. And that makes all the difference in in how people um, come to work. So I, I'll give you a quick story. So I went to, uh, I went to university in uh, Florida, United States. Um, and we're pretty Florida, like, you know, the big thing all the tourists do when they go down there is they're excited to see palm trees. Well, I had the opportunity to work on a palm tree farm part-time, um, which was really, it was a whole that we probably do a whole different episode on that. Uh, I could probably <laughs> find you somebody who's a good, good guest to talk yeah. about the ins and outs of that. But, um, it was really, really fascinating work. <clears throat> Palm trees are just incredibly resilient. You can um, dig them out of the ground, wrap the root ball in cellophane, and it doesn't even have to be very big, and feed, you know, give them minimal water and nutrients, and they'll stay good for years that way. So that's basically what this business was. They would dig palm trees out of the ground. They use a big boom lift with these cloth straps to like load them onto the racks at the farm or um, to take them off the racks and load them onto a flatbed truck and sell them wholesale to landscapers. So, um, I was helping one time I was learning how to drive the boom. Um, and I had a, a palm tree. So I had this, I don't know, 20 foot, um, Washingtonia palm hanging from the end of this strap and I'm swinging it around. And I, I made an, a, a mistake. 
that could very nearly have killed someone. <laughs> I mean, wow. just really. I mean, <laughs> I'm like 20, 21 years old, you know. Um, yeah. Not that, not to knock young people, but like I just, I didn't know any better. And the owner of the company was standing there on site, and he came running over and literally grabbed the controls from me. And I thought, oh my gosh. And he said, okay, now that was dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but no guilt there. There's no anger or emotion. It was just a factual thing. This is yeah, dangerous. No, it, exactly. He said, this was dangerous. And then his next words were completely transforming. He said, let's do it together. Wow. Let me show you how, like, let's work on it together and get the right way down to do this. Mm, that's powerful. It was so powerful. It totally, and it's, and it's those type of experiences, I think, in the workplace, when you do those things well, uh, when you're inclusive in that way, when, when mistakes are training opportunities rather than a chance to, to belittle someone, um, it's one of those things that contributes to workplace culture. But I think that those types of attitudes towards your workforce make all the difference and, and it makes all the difference in whether people want to come and work for you. Hmm. So just off the back of that, then. Can you tell us about the state of workplace culture in most businesses within the landscape industry from your experience in the States? I know it might be a little bit different to what we have here in Australia, but I'll, I guess what we'll probably speak on that in a second as well. <laughs> I, th I imagine it's probably the same in Australia, to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, I think uh, here in the States, I'll say this, this is my opinion. So if I get slaughtered for this, when this episode comes out, that's fine. I'll take my lumps. All opinions expressed here are my own and do not reflect Daniel Fuller or Plants Grow here. Um, I, I think they're overworked and underpaid chronically. Yeah. <laughs> overworked during peak season and, and chronically underpaid. Um, people that keep doing it, uh, keep working in those conditions, either have little choice, uh, in my opinion. And, and, and in the U.S., we're pretty heavily reliant in the industry, or I should say, and they're starting to realize now, a lot of people are starting to cotton onto the problem with this because um, there have been visa issues, but we're very heavily reliant on migrant workers from other countries. Mm. Um, so they either have little choice, like their visa says they have to do, you know, work in this industry for this company, or... Um, you know, they don't feel like they have mobility. Like maybe they can't get to another workplace. They don't have a car. Um, so you, you get some Americans that are that are in those situations. Largely, though, I think one of the other things you, that happens is people do it on purpose because they actually fall in love with the work. Um, wow. So they put up with the, the chronic overwork and the chronic underpay. Um, and there's a really good analogy for this. It's um, zookeepers, believe it or not. Um in the United States, or I should say, and I, and I have to go back and look at my research on this because I did some research on this. Um, in the U.S. at least, I'll say, um, most zookeepers make about twenty-five grand a year, which is not a lot of money. It's, I don't even know if that's past, it's just past the poverty line um, in the United States. And um, they'll work that way sometimes for years um, in these just terrible conditions where you're out in all sorts of weather and all sorts of um, working environments, working long hours and, and chronically underpaid. Um, and they do it because, and, and they talk about this frequently, they feel a sense of being called to the work. Mm. Um, I think if, um, as an industry, as the green industry, if we did a much better job of giving people purpose 
you know, I don't think you'd even, you didn't, I mean, yes, you, I want you to pay people the right, what they, what they need a living wage, right? I want you to, <laughs> I want 100%. you to pay people the right thing to pay. <laughs> but like, I don't think that that's when people start talking about recruiting and retention and workplace, like some of the things that you think you need to do, oh, well, I've got to pay more. I can't afford to pay more. Maybe you don't have to. Maybe you're paying an appropriate wage, but you're really bad at talking about the why behind your business. Maybe, so I worked for a guy who um, donated to dozens of charities throughout um, the county. Um, so in the U.S. state, you know, you've got, you know, the states and then they've got many administrative districts in there called counties. So they, um, he, he donated to dozens and dozens of these throughout the, and he never talked about it. <laughs> He never talked about all the good that the company was doing that he was doing personally. Well, that's a Christian thing, isn't it? It's 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 infuriating from my standpoint because <laughs> I ran the marketing for this guy. <laughs> Do you know how powerful that is when your team sees the why? Yeah. Right? Like they would probably get behind those charitable organizations that you're donating to. Um, if it, if it's, if your why is, you know, um, carbon offset, you know, you're going to plant a, a, a million trees because you want to offset and help, you know, reduce greenhouse emissions. Talk about that. Hey, this year we're, you know, this month we're going to plant X number of trees and we're going to offset X number of tons of carbon in the atmosphere. And you guys are a part of that. Like, I think if we just were better at that, um, that would go a long way towards improving people's job satisfaction and, and feeling like they're part of something bigger. No one wants to feel like they're part of something bigger whose only purpose is to make money. No. Then you feel like a cog in the machine. Hmm. But when you feel like you're a part of something bigger, that's doing good in the world around you. That's, that's working to improve the place that you live and that you're going to pass down to your kids. And I, that's a whole different feeling. Totally. And it's like some people will go for minimum wage to work with the Lions and then some people will go mm -hmm. to another job, wish they were with the Lions all week and then spend all their money on the weekend to visit the Lions. Yeah, absolutely. But but that line is different for everybody, right? If you give people yeah. purpose, if you give them a sense of, you know, what I'm doing matters. Like whether that's climate change, whether it's helping the elderly, whether it's, um, you know, being a part of those, you know, being in the big trucks or climbing trees or whatever it is, it will be different for everybody. Yes. Do do a better job of selling the why. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think that starts even from like the interview. Right. Yeah. On the in, the interview, onboarding, and then every day after that. On job boards. Yes. Like people, people should be talking about, hey, you know, if again, if your why is, let's say um, you're very concerned about the ecology and, and um, climate change, well, then you need to be talking in your job board uh, postings on hortpeople.com uh, about the number of um, tons of carbon you offset. You need to be talking about um, practicing good IPM. Um, you need to be talking about environmental stewardship and responsibility because you're going to attract like-minded people that way. It ensures, that, it ensures that there's a value alignment right from the word go when you start it as early in the process as you can completely agree people forget that job ads are an ad you've got to constantly be thinking yes. about what's in it for me what's in it for your audience for your customer which is your employees yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree anymore and just as a side note this is a pet peeve and it's becoming a bigger issue here in the united states um there's actually some some states that are in cities that are passing laws about it now but if you're listening to this put the job salary in there 
put the, put yes. the salary in the, in the job description, <laughs> oh, please. Oh my goodness, yes. Because you know what? I actually just saw this this morning and I, I was flabbergasted by this. Adobe does a, um, you know, the, the huge uh, company, Adobe, right? Like they Photoshop. produce things we use every day, right? Acrobat. Yeah, Acrobat, uh, Photoshop, Illustrator, all these things. Um, they do a workforce survey um, every year and um, they just surveyed um, it was recent college graduates or people who are about to graduate in the upcoming term, right? So um, we'll graduate here in the spring. So in a couple of months, 85% of them will not apply unless the job salary is in the range or the job range is in wow. the description. So what kind of candidates are you getting if you don't have the salary on there then? Uh, right. This is what I'm saying. Like you don't have the luxury of being ambiguous with it anymore. Just put it in there. Mm. Well, that's why we've made it mandatory on Hort people, not so much for the employers, because I know a lot of them sort of drag mm -hmm. their heels with that, but really it's for the job seekers so that they know yes. what to expect. And I'm sort of having to go through there and then follow up with some employers because they put in award wage. And it's like, mm -hmm. yes, you can find out the information from that, but it's too difficult. I'd much rather for there to just be a salary range, even if it's 70 to 100K. Now, that's a massive, massive range. Yep. But it can depend basic, based on your skills. Like, were you the previous um, head gardener at a botanic gardens? Or, you know, is this a right. step up or for you? Or are you taking this responsibility on for the first time? That makes a difference in what I'm willing to offer you. I get it. But put a range in there. But put a, yeah. but just please, put a range in there. <laughs> people, people that you need to sustain your business for the next 10 years. Um, that you need to apply and sustain your business are not going to apply unless you have the range in there. Mm -hmm. And and not only that, as an employer, why would you want to waste time, get all the way through the interview process? That's expensive. Oh with all the goodness. people you have to involve in that process. Why would you want to waste your own time and money interviewing someone only to find out that you were never going to be a good fit? It's crazy. Complete waste of time and money. It's insane to me. So anyway, that's I'm off my horse now. But um, <laughs> now get back that's, on. That's it. a pet peeve of mine. Just put the range in there. We're not put finished yet. <laughs> um, look, before you mentioned the culture in the US that you have a lot of migrant workers now mm -hmm. in the horticulture industry, at least in Australia. I wish we had more migrant workers. It's just too hard to hire migrant workers here in our industry because mm. of the way the classifications are set up around horticulture, amenity horticulture. Mm. Like we don't get a whole lot of recognition. I think a lot of the time legislatively horticulture means production horticulture and it's really agriculture. Um, so there's right. really no place for what I do. It's like a gardener. So it's sort of really hard to get yeah. the um, get the terminology in place so that then we can get those grants. We can get those um, special allowances from the immigration side of things to get the people through that red tape because it's just so much red tape. It costs mm. thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to bring somebody from overseas. And when you're talking about, you know, these entry-level roles, that's impossible to hire overseas from. Maybe you'll get something like a landscape manager or something. Maybe that's worth right. it. But in terms of someone who's walking up and down spraying weeds and hedging paths, that's just not going to happen, unfortunately. Wow. I Yeah. I think – so in the States here um, – there are a series of so like agriculture relies really heavily on um, on migrant labor as well. So agriculture is one of those sectors, and then um, the the visa program in the states is called um, there's a there's an H two A and an H two B. H two A is the agricultural workers. H two B is your um, landscape workers. And a lot of times um, people frown on that, but a lot of times 
if they're in a good place, right? Like if they're working for a good company, mm. the same company brings the same workers back year after year after year. So like I know a company, um, it's been in business for, oh gosh, 35 years. And they've had um, some of their guys, their age, you know, from the time they started and then grew to the point where they needed to bring in extra help and, and needed it fast. They've got some of these HGB workers that have been with them 20 years. Hmm. You know, so they'll go, they'll go home in the winter <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then come back. Um, so it's not like they're, um, Permanent you know, some of them are in really good situations is, is, yeah. is my point. And um, the problem with it is um, immigration is a very uh, sensitive subject in the United States. And yes. <laughs> it is in Australia too, to be fair. But at this point, we, we have a skills shortage crisis yeah, we are stuffed though. I think at this point, everyone sort of sees, okay, well, we're stuffed if we don't get overseas workers. So I think it's starting to shift. <laughs> I love that terminology. Honestly, we are. We're stuffed. I have no idea what we're going to do if we if we can't solve this staff shortage crisis. Our industry is completely stuffed. Yeah, and I, I think that's kind of where we're at too. And the problem is for so many of these migrant workers, right? So like if you're bringing in somebody – some of the migrants um, I've worked with in the past have been from uh, Honduras, Guatemala, mm. um, El Salvador, and um, they they're really smart. They're incredibly hardworking people, and they'll you know sometimes <clears throat> um, pool their resources. So like you know, um, I worked at a company um, where I was the only like for for two weeks um, nobody bothered to learn my name. They just called me Gringo. Like they were, they were just like, Hey, and I don't know if, like, if that's, that slang translates well, it's basically Central American Spanish for, Hey, white guy. Is there a sort of a connotation there of a stupid white guy as well? Or uh, possibly, I'm not sure. You know, that's yeah, it's <laughs> a bit like Bule in Indonesia. I think you, you hear that when you walk in, we, my wife and I went to Java and we just walked through the shopping center and we were the only white people there. And you just hear, Bule, 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 like traveling, like um, Chinese whispers through the whole shopping center. They're like, get ready, yeah, get yeah. your wares ready because there's white people coming through. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but they they didn't even bother to learn my name. And and they would, I think probably half the company, there was like 16 Hondurans and one El Salvadoran. Um, and I think probably half of them, I think like eight, a solid eight of them lived in one house together. So yeah. they'll pool their resources and then they can send the dollar goes just so much further. So mm. they'll pool their resources. Everybody chips in for rent and they have disposable income to send home. Mm. Um, the problem is because um, it goes so much further and because they're happy to kind of get some of that stuff, especially a lot of them that like don't speak fluent English. They're just like, yeah, hey, I made it. I'm in. I'm getting, you know, X amount of dollars per hour. Um, the industry has kind of chronically been like, OK, well, they'll take a lower wage then yes. then an American would who grew up in our school systems and um, mm. so so that has become the problem and now I think the industry is starting to feel the pinch of having exploited these poor people <laughs> for for years and year, decades really and um, it's good I mean it's about time um, there's a guy here in the states runs a, a large large company um, they've got offices. Oh, good grief. Pennsylvania, all the way to Florida. And then they just opened one in Chicago. Um, and um, he is, and I can, I can honestly say this. I think he, there's a handful of them, but he's the, the most successful I know by far. Um, 
Latino business owner. I mean, multi, multi-million dollar. Is this Steven Gomez or something? It is. Yeah, Josh Gomez. Yeah. Josh Gomez. Gomez. Yeah. Gomez. 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 But um, Josh Gomez is um, is leading a charge right now, um, trying to kind of like bring the industry together and say, hey, look, we need to do something to standardize um, working conditions before mm-hmm. A, an actual union forms like let's just let's just do the right thing now and not yeah. force them to unionize then it doesn't have to be combative as long as Correct. you're acting with in good faith and you're not just trying to shiv them so that they can yeah. you know, take away their moves from them but yeah absolutely yeah. it's it's insane and i think the difference between australia and america as well is that we are an island state so it's like good luck getting into australia man so <laughs> <laughs> is it is it that tough to get into oh my goodness it's impossible like Come, have you ever been to Australia? I have not. Our border security are intense. They do really? not smile. <laughs> okay, they huh. smile sometimes, but no, it's it's very hard to get into Australia. We're well known for our, um, you know, our border control, and it's actually a really good thing because as an island state, you know, we are very susceptible to all sorts of th- all sorts of things, particularly you know biosecurity issues. So mm. I think yeah, we're very tight with our borders. Um, yeah, it would just be nice if. I don't mind the restrictions, but it would just be nice if we could sort out some of that red tape around getting people into this country and to fill jobs that are critically, like critically at risk of um, never being filled and just, yeah, businesses <laughs> failing. It's, yeah, it's awful. Well, and it's not just businesses failing. I think what helps, um, and I don't know how you guys weathered through COVID, but like here, um, landscapers were considered essential and they were allowed to continue working um because there are public safety issues right like somebody's got to trim the low-hanging branches Hmm. somebody's got to trim the shrubs that line the sidewalk somebody's got to uh you know so all these things that that you know need to be done to kind of promote public safety if you just shut the whole industry down um public and private sector you know then you'd have been really and, and a lot of times too you've got cities or towns that outsource that to a private company so the public you know the the public interest is affected and they had to um, had to make that case, you know, like there had to be an awareness of that. Um, and it happened pretty quickly, but all of that to say, like, you know, I think, I think that's what it takes is, is legislators, is those folks in those halls of power, understanding the importance of the industry continuing to survive. And that's up to us to keep telling them what's going on in our industry. So that's why we mm-hmm. need industry associations. Like in Australia, we have the Australian Institute of Horticulture, which I'm nice. a committee member of. And um, of yeah, that, that's really what we get in there and we talk about, like how can we advance the cause of Australian horticulture? And if it weren't for, you know, um, organizations like us, the NGINA, yeah, like all the landscaping associations around the country, it's sort of like we're much stronger as a collective voice. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, so going back to the to the, the pay issue, you know, the average landscaper in the United States makes less than $15 an hour. So that's the equivalent of uh, $31,000 a year if they work all year. Now, a lot of them work overtime, have the winners off, so it, it balances out. And I would say most landscapers pull in uh, under $40,000 a year. I mean, it's not, they're not making, no one's getting rich working in the industry unless... Um, you move up unless you're an owner or manager, you know, something like that. Hmm. Then you can start to see your wages increase. But I actually just, I actually myself just conducted, I saw that number last year. I saw a slightly lower, lower number and I thought that can't be right. So I just did some of my own original research. Um, 
using a job board where I could search by state in the United States. And then it also showed me um, the average salary for that job title. Mm. And it showed me the number of um, job listings at that, you know, in that state. And so I was able to have like, okay, there's an average of, you know, 600 and I think it was 630 job openings per state. That was the average. Um, And then the average salary was $14 and 91 cents. I mean, it's just shameful. It's just shameful. (laughs) We ask people to do these incredibly difficult, uh, very dangerous jobs and we don't want to pay them anything for it. So particularly look, and this is part of the problem as well. Just pay people. Well, we, we haven't differentiated ourselves as qualified landscapers and horticulturists from laborers. Like at some point, you know, you can't pay laborers a premium rate, but when we're talking about skilled professionals who have actually been educated in this and we've been through the training, we have years Mm -hmm. of experience, sometimes decades, it really is time for, yeah, pay rise. So I guess that's probably one of the major reasons employees leave a landscape company, right? So that's the pay rate. I, yeah, absolutely. And so in that same thing, I wanted to compare it. I didn't want to just say, okay, landscapers don't make enough money, right? Um, mm. Let's compare it to other industries. Right. So fast food workers in the United States, using that same methodology, same number of, you know, the same, like, like how many openings are there, um, how, you know, doing it, you know, qualifying it by state, and then searching for the average um, pay range in that state and averaging all of them out. So I have, you know, I searched for all through all every state in the United States, um, grabbed the average one, created a spreadsheet and had an average at the bottom. <clears throat> the average fast food worker in the United States makes $17 and 20 cents an hour. They make two twenty nine an hour more than a landscaper. Come on. Like people will work. They don't want, you don't say they don't want to work. They'll work where they get paid. Just pay them. That's right. And these are not chefs. Uh, probably a lot of them, these aren't qualified right. chefs. When we're talking about a large percentage of the people that you're talking about are qualified landscapers. Mm-hmm, probably. Even if it's entry level. Even, Even if entry it's entry level. level. No, okay. that's right. It's shameful. Provide yeah. provide them, like, because your fast food workers are entry level too, right? Um, mm-hmm. General laborer is a category in the United States. I don't know if it is there as well, but this is like, Oh, um, a construction site just needs to hire somebody to pick up the the pile of two by fours and move them from one side of the job site mm-hmm. to the other. Like, there's no skill associated with a general laborer. You are just physically using your muscles to pick stuff up, move it around. They make um, fifteen. Oh my gosh, what was it? Fifteen thirty an hour or something like that. Fifteen twenty nine. It was like thirty eight, forty yeah. cents an hour more than landscapers. Mm. Come on, like That's just rough. the narrative that people don't want to work bothers me. People want to work. People are just going to work where they get paid. So give them a mission and give them money. Is that pretty much all of it? Or is there a little bit more in terms of like why are reasons that people are leaving landscape companies? Um, I think a lot of reasons people leave landscape companies. I think they leave lack of pay, obviously. And we talked about that. Hmm. Um, I think lack of training and lack of advancement opportunities is a yeah. key thing. They get bored. Yeah. You get to a place where it's like, all right, I've seen and done and conquered. And if they don't see a way to improve themselves and and yes, get paid more. Don't get me wrong. But I think everyone, most people I'll say most people have an innate ambition. They want to keep growing. Right. Mm. And so if they have, if they don't have the opportunity to do that, they're, they're going to find somewhere that they have that opportunity. Like I have made in my career, I have made lateral moves, moves that didn't make me any more money. Hmm. because I felt like I was at 
uh, one of the best companies I ever worked for. I loved the place. I loved the relationships I had there. I had built my own team. I had trained them. They were absolute rock stars. Um, the darling of the company. I wasn't, my team was, um, you know, everyone, at the, everyone at the company held that held my team in res, in high respect and I didn't have any mobility. I had mm. my immediate supervisor left um, and they conducted a job search and, and um, hired a new candidate without even asking me. Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, what did I do? Well, I, I lasted about another year, I think. And, and then I've uh, got an, somebody else headhunted me. I got another company approached me and said, Hey, would you be interested? And it was, a, it was a different field. Um, it was something I had familiarity with. It was in marketing and I, and I have a pretty strong background in that. So I said, yeah, I'll try to learn something new. And I came back to the, it came back to the green industry. Cause I, it turns out I really, as much as I like understanding digital marketing, um, doing that day in and day out is soul sucking right. for me. I just can't do it. <laughs> can't do yeah, it. If it's for widgets. Yeah. Oh gosh. But, um, so I have a lot of respect for people that can cause the world needs them. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, but I made that lateral move because I didn't have the opportunity to grow and no one was willing to, no one even approached me. No one said, Hey, with a little bit of training, you could be X. I think sometimes you know? the temptation is if someone's really performing in their role to not give them any other opportunities, cause you, you might rock that boat and it might, things might not go so well, or that team might go downhill after you're in a higher position. I think that's very plausible. Uh, yeah, but then the danger is, okay, so then they're just going to leave your company altogether and that's 100 times worse. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, because then you're, then, you're then you're in a bad spot as well. The other thing I think um, happens and, and another reason that people leave, and, and the word is overused, so I won't use the word toxic, but I'll just say like a poisonous or a, a kind of a harmful culture. Mm. Um, I'll give you a great example of, of this. And one of the guys that was on that team that, that was a rock star, the team that I built, that I, this is a guy that um, he was an internal hire. He had worked in a different department. Um, I brought him over to work for me and trained him and he just absolutely smashed it. Um, he got pinched. Another company grabbed him. Hmm. And part of the reason he dis he cited when he left in his exit interview, and he made this very, very clear to our human resources department. Um, was that we tolerated a specific individual. And now this, oh, this person okay. that he had a problem with um, was a very high performer, brought in um, well over a million dollars in sales revenue every year, um, was really, really, um, I mean, just, just was, was good at his job, um, but was also um, very hot-tempered, um, had had very nearly had physical altercations with other coworkers, had verbal altercations where he's like in someone's face screaming at them. Mm. Um, we've had female compliance clients um, complain about him because he made them uncomfortable, Ooh. like just all kinds of really. And so this guy that worked for me on his way out said, Hey, look, if you're going to tolerate this guy, I don't want to be a part of it anymore. Like it, that yeah. made it easy for me to leave. Fair enough. <laughs> so, huh. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, yeah, you're right. Just because someone's a top performer in one aspect doesn't mean that they're a good member for your whole team or for the culture at large. Right, right. And I think um, when you create a good culture, a good workplace culture that um, fosters uh, trust on your team, 
that is supportive of certain team, you know, of all team members. Um, you should celebrate, you know, personal wins as well as professional ones, not just like, oh, so-and-so got a, um, their certificate um, as, a, as a certified horticulturist, but they, they just had a baby. They just mm. got their black belt in judo, you know, whatever it is that they're into. Um, you should be celebrating those things too. So when, when you have people that, that aren't on mission, that aren't rowing in the same direction and, and that culture uh, is really healthy, those, um, kind of bad apples. Um, and I heard this term somewhere and I don't, I wish I could give credit because I love the term, but they self eject. They eventually wow. say, yeah, yeah, you know what? Like something about this place doesn't sit right with me. Mate, we've all been there. And I've got to go. Yep. I've been there. Yeah. And, and and it's but but like when you've got when you've got a healthy culture and um and that self-ejection happens. So again, I had this happen one time on a team that I was leading. Um we had a guy that was not quite on board with everybody else. We sent on a seasonal layoff. It came to be the winter time. Some of the team um, took a layoff. So he took us, he volunteered to take a seasonal layoff, took the layoff. And when he left, the rest of the team um, discovered that he had been doing some not quite above board things. I won't say unethical. They weren't totally unethical, but they were pretty close. Mm. Um, and they were left to pick up the pieces. So they're making phone calls to customers and trying to make things right. And, um, and the company had a had a Christmas breakfast, and um, this this guy who had been doing these unethical things showed up to the breakfast, and he's talking to the rest. And I wasn't even there; I actually was in another state at this time. <laughs> I was with some family out of state. So this guy shows up, and he goes, "Hey guys, you know how's it going? How's everything going to the office?" And the rest of the team looks at him, and they go, "Dude, what were you thinking? Mm-hmm. We've spent the last few weeks cleaning up your mess." Mm-hmm. Blah, blah, blah. I didn't say a word to him. I was going to handle it when he got back from layoff and have a face-to-face conversation. The rest of my team, and they didn't, they weren't aggressive. They didn't, they didn't beat him up and say, Oh, you're a jerk. You're, you're a <laughs> a-hole, whatever. They just said, what were you doing? Like, why would you think that's okay? That's not what we do. Right. And how's that for workplace culture? That's not what we do here. Yes, that's it. And they said, that's not what we do. That's not the way we, that's not the way we do business. And Two days later, I had an email. Um, he resigned, and I and I, and I mm. called and made phone calls and followed up and emails and everything. And I never heard back from the guy. And my HR manager was was pretty upset about it because <laughs> she had worked hard to recruit somebody. Yeah. And I eventually got to the point, you know, uh, a couple weeks into this whole debacle, where she said something about it to me, and I just looked at her and I said, "You know what? It's okay." Like that this person was not a good fit. Yeah. Like if they were doing this stuff, it doesn't matter how hard we work to recruit them. Mm. Um, they were never going to, this was going to happen eventually. Mm. It might as well happen now, a couple of months in, as opposed to two or three years from now, we find out we've got a whole lot bigger mess to clean up. Yeah. It's like you've bought right? some shady, um, you know, uh, shady coin off the internet and, um, yeah. you know, and it's tanking and you're like, no, 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 just hold on to it. We spent $50 on this coin and now it's worth yeah. $1, but just keep holding on to it. No, at some point you're just better off sending it away and using the resources that you have left elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. But he, but he self-ejected. He just said, you know what? Yeah. Something like, if I'm going to get called out for this, if I'm going to be held accountable for this, then that's not the place I want to work. All right, yeah. fine. 
I'd right. rather you find somewhere else There's to work. You're going to be comfortable, him. and we're going to be comfortable. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. And the guy we replaced him with is an absolute rock star. Mm. I mean, just tremendous. So mm. I, though, I think the when you tolerate those people because you're scared of what happens without them, um, you end up losing the people you've got on your team that you really want to keep. Yeah. So going back to other toxic traits, I can think of some toxic traits that I've seen in workplaces that I've been at. Mm-hmm. You know, and usually it's a balance too. So you'll say, oh, micromanaging is bad, but then also the yes. opposite is bad too. You know, too relaxed, no rules, no idea mm-hmm. of what to achieve. So, yes. you know, no direction, that. right? Yeah. So it's a bit polarization, isn't it? Sort of like a bit like what the Buddha said, you got to be in the middle. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I think um, this is the way I viewed leadership. You give your team you you know if as a company if you're the senior leader maybe you set this direction yourself maybe you have a team that helps you with it um you set the direction this is where we go these are the goals we want to achieve right and then you have to break those goals down and every department you know however many services you offer or whatever they're all contributing towards that goal if that goal is a sales number great if it's number of trees planted great if it's um, we're going to donate X amount of money to, um, in the States, I don't know if you guys have it, Habitat for Humanity. You know, they build housing for low-income families. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're going to work on X number of Habitat projects. Whatever those goals are, right? We're going to donate so much money. You have to break those down. To donate X amount of money, let's say we want to donate $10,000 to these charities. To donate $10,000 to these charities, that means we have to make $400,000 in profit so that we can pay the rest of our expenses and and um, have a profit sharing program. And then, you know, we donate a percentage of that to, so if we're going to make $400,000, how do we do that? Well, our sales numbers need to be in this place and we need to produce this much work each year. And how do we, so you, you break that down into smaller chunks. So everybody understands their responsibility to the company. Yeah. Right. They understand what they need to do to contribute to that larger why. And then as the leader, if you're in a management position, I don't care if you supervise four people, I don't care if you supervise 40 people, your job, in my mind, is to um, find out what the barriers are to those people executing mm. and eliminate them. Mm. Right? If they say, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I can think of a couple of them, like a couple of examples, but like, yeah. Okay. In order to do that, we need to, you know, spend no more than three seconds on the phone, directing phone calls, just as a, as a, you know, you have somebody that uh, we need to get the phone calls to the right person, to the right, you know, the right department faster. Mm. So I worked in a company that did that and they said, okay, well, that's the goal. And they hired somebody, trained them and, and actually updated their telephone system. They invested probably six figures um, just in the phone system and then plus however much in, in the salary for this person just to make sure the phone calls got to the right because that was a priority. And that was a green company, by the way. That was a landscape company I worked for. Um, so I, I just, your job is to, to figure out what's holding your team back from achieving their goals and then just actively removing those barriers. And if you see that barrier coming up before they do, before they're even like really aware of it, proactively go out and, and start to address those things. Mm. Um, one of the ways I did that as like a mid-level manager at a company I worked for was um, 
when I saw certain things were slowing down the process, I'd begin to talk to my bosses about it first before my team even really saw like, okay, this is frust. This is what's frustrating before they could like, you know, they had frustrations, but they would like, they couldn't really like put their finger on it. If I put my thumb on it, you know, like this is what the problem is first, I would start to talk to them about it. So that way when my bosses then came to my team and said, Hey, well, what's the thing? And they've got it. Then they figured it out and they go, Oh yeah. You know, this thing is really slowing us down. They're hearing it from multiple places. And then mm. it becomes, Oh, we need to address this. Yeah. You plant that seed earlier Squeaky in the process. Wheel. So I guess for me, that's, um, that's one of the ways, right? Like you just have to, if you want to, um, really improve the culture, you have to set the why you have to break it down into its component achievable parts. And you just have to get those things out of your way that are keeping your team from doing it. You don't, you don't have to micromanage if, if your team knows what they're supposed to do, what they're supposed mm-hmm. to execute on, what your expectations are, and you're actively helping them do it. And you're firing the dead eggs, <laughs> the dead weight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll just do it. They don't, you don't need to micromanage mm-hmm. and you, and you, but you do have to set those directions and you do have to be involved enough to realize when there's roadblocks and get rid of them. Mm. So I think you're right. I think there's a balance there. I think it's also important to choose your goals intelligently too. My dad, yes. uh, when I when I was a kid, he was working for Telstra, and he eventually, at, uh, towards the end of my high school years, he was working in a he was managing the whole call center, and one mm. of the directives was, um, you know, we need to reduce our call times. So they had averages of whatever yes. it was five minute call times, and so they brought them down to one minute or whatever. But what Dad noticed was happening was that the call center operators were just getting any excuse to pass them onto another division or just get them off the phone as quickly as possible. Yep. And then they were calling up again. Without without fixing the problem, right? Without fixing the problem. And it made it worse. Yep. No, I, I agree entirely. I had that and I, and so part of one of the one of the teams I supervised was I, I supervised an inbound um, sales team. Uh, we sold lawn care pest control over the phone. And uh, you know, fertilization, weed control treatments. Um, and that was the thing is there was this somebody in the leadership at this company got the idea that call times should be within a certain minute range. Mm. And (laughs) I said, all right, well, um, then we need to fix something. That's not, that's not achievable with the way we're currently doing it. And they said, well, why is that? And I said, well, because we offer three, four different lawn care programs. Mm. So when someone says, what do you, we, we educate customers on the difference between those. Right now, our, our process is very focused on asking questions, making sure we're getting the right program so that we're selling the right offering to the client so that way they're happy with the results and they stay long-term and we make more money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they said, uh, oh. And they said, well, well, why is that a challenge? I said, because we offer four lawn care programs. <laughs> so when a customer asks about the difference, we have to explain the difference about four different programs. Yeah, it'd be like a landscape company being like, look, we need to mow this certain amount of lawns per day. Well, Mm -hmm. that's not the only key performance indicator. You've also got how many callbacks do you get? Because it's no point in smashing the records for the fastest lawns done and then you're getting all the callbacks because you're going to be throwing money down. Because then you're doing work for free. Doing work for free, 100%. And if you're not right setting those expectations from the word go. So yeah, I think you're right that the expectations have to be... 
intelligent achievable but they have to be but they have to be um based in reality right like are mm. there places we can make incremental improvements rather than um just saying so i'll give you a great example the the um, palm tree farm i worked at where the guy brought me into the process and said we're going to make this a learning moment one of the goals that they had he said we need to get out the door faster in the morning like mm. we, how do we do that i hear that so, one too yeah yeah oh yeah everybody gets that one and so he did one of the most brilliant things i've ever seen and he hired me <laughs> and my job was to come in in the evening after the trucks got back and i prepped all the trucks for the day for the following day yeah so i um tore apart and cleaned and re-oiled and retightened and fueled all the chainsaws um i loaded fill dirt onto the trucks um all of those things i cleaned the inside of the trucks so that way in the morning when the crew showed up they could just roll out the door mm-hmm. how brilliant is that yeah and that they probably appreciate that too and there's another side to it which is that that morning is actually an important time for that team building. So mm-hmm. it's not we want to rush them out the door. It's about we want to be efficient. So, you know, maybe it is you get up there, yes. have a coffee, say good day to everyone, or 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Every workplace is going to be different. Um, right. But then, yeah, it's a pain in the butt when you've got, especially in, in one of the depots I worked at, you ha- they had to go out in a certain order, the trucks, because, you know, they all mm, sort of parking yep. each other in. And if that water truck, is, which is blocking everyone else off, needs to, get whatever replace it just holds the whole team up and then suddenly it's 60 minutes before everyone's at that door and that's money and it's not really productive time like that team building in the morning is it's like after a certain point there's a diminishing you know return on that investment of time i think if if your team is longer than 10 or 15 minutes you can probably find some improvement there yeah yeah yeah. And you'll find a lot of people, if you've got a large team, some people will turn up early anyway, because they, that is part of their day. They really do enjoy that yeah. getting there in the morning, singing that song as they walk through the empty halls and, you know, yeah. taking their leak and making their coffee or whatever it is. Every workplace is going to be different. This is not something that happens in small workplaces, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you reckon about like, examples for how landscape businesses have gotten this right do you have any case studies for us i'll give you a couple of examples um i think that um and one of them is a place i worked one of them is a place i don't know if this is popular in australia or not but landscape companies here like to network and they'll do site visits so they'll go they'll take part of their team to another company and i want to see how you operate do you have something that i don't have and a lot of times the companies will invite them because you know that's yeah i you know we're we're a thought leader yeah you can come in and see how we do it and Mm. if you can replicate it great um if you get an idea great um it's pretty collaborative in that way as long as you're not in the same market right Right. so (laughs) not in the same city you know across town we're not doing that but i'll go to another state and visit somebody and see if they're doing something different Mm. the one place i worked um, really wanted to drill down into their core values they revamped their core values and, and I thought they were great core values. I thought they were really thoughtful and purposeful and deliberate. And, um, and I was a hundred percent behind them and, um, but they wanted to encourage people to, um, you know, really think, think about the core values and embody those core values. And so what they did was they actually just created a nominating system. And it was as simple as like a paper suggestion box, 
Um, it's basically what it was. Instead of suggestions, though, you got a nominating slip and you said, hey, um, I saw somebody embodying, you know, I saw Daniel Fuller embodying the core value of um, commitment to learning. And he did it by this. This is how I saw him doing it. Cool. So it's like snitching in reverse. <laughs> yeah. And then at the end of the month, what they did was they literally just stuck their hand in the box, blindfolded, pulled one out and allowed the winner to choose from uh, a variety of, you know, like they could get like, it was like $150 or it was just like, there was some amount of cash involved. There was like a, an Amazon gift card. There was um, additional um, vacation time. Um, there was all these, these different options. That's so multi-layered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you gave people choices. And also they get excited about it all week, thinking about it, you know, then when that happens on the Friday morning, or whatever, everyone's mood gets elevated. There are knock-on effects from something like that that go beyond just, oh, cool, 150 bucks. Now I get to spend that on something. Yeah. But you had to, you had to embody the core value Yeah, and you had to get, and you had to be noticed doing it. Right. Like, and, and I think sometimes people, um, like I went out of my way to look for people that like, weren't going to get nominated. You know, like we had a guy mm. <clears throat> that worked like overnight on the on the equipment and the trucks. Yeah. <laughs> like he was literally literally there by himself like all night. So like sometimes if I was leaving late, he'd be coming in. Um and if he one time he helped me move some stuff. So I was like, Oh, I, I nominated him for something. Just because no one mm. else like no one else because they published then too. It wasn't just um the winner. They published the list each month of everyone who had been nominated. Mm-hmm. Like these coworkers were nominated for embodying a core value. Congratulations. Like they got to see their name in front of the, you know, the, in front of the whole company. Um, it was a big company. It was 120 employees. So, um, so it was a big deal. So that was, I thought really, really clever way to do that. Um, I did see another, there was another company I saw too, and they had this done really, really well. Um, anytime someone, um, embodied one of those values all the management supervisors all had basically um like it was like monopoly money it was like a fake currency that was specific to the company Mm -hmm. right and um people could cash that in for real physical things so they could buy they could actually buy additional pto they could buy and then they had their whole the other thing they had set up was an entire um, Amazon store that was, that was, um, specific to them that they had like negotiated some kind of a rate with Amazon. I don't know how they did this. Yeah. They had a whole storefront set up, um, where people could cash in their bucks. Um, it was like the name of the company. Like, like, let's just go, let's pretend it was called greens landscaping. They were called like greens bucks. Right. So they had like, um, these, these, this currency and they could trade it in and it would say, Oh, this, this, um, tent is 5,000 greens bucks. Mm. Right. And people would buy this stuff. They'd buy stuff to go camping. They'd buy sporting equipment for their kids. And, um, I mean, it was just all kinds of cool stuff that they could buy Hmm. just by embodying the core values. You know, like they, they, they accumulated enough of that. They began to live it often enough that people noticed they got rewarded and they were able to turn that into tangible things. Um, and actually yeah. like the extra, the extra time off, the extra vacation time was in the Amazon store too. It was, right. I don't remember how much it was, but it was, <laughs> it wasn't super expensive. There was a lot more expensive things in there. Um, you know, I mean, they had all kinds of stuff. They had like inflatable bounce houses for kids parties. They had all this crazy stuff in there and it was just, um, a really, really good thing. 
That's so cool. And I can imagine as well, you know, oh, I've been meaning to leave this company, but I just got 500 more green bucks till I can buy that tent and then I'll be out of here. Yes. You know, it just yes, keeps it, people around. It probably could. Absolutely. Um, and it keeps them around, but not only does it keep them around, it keeps them around doing the behaviors that you want to encourage. Mm. Right. Um, the other thing that the same company did, and I thought this was just absolutely freaking brilliant. Whenever they hired um, for the, you know, this was a, um, this was actually uh, a mainly a, uh, a chemical application company. So they did lawn care, uh, mosquito control, perimeter pest control around the outside of a home, that kind of thing, you know, tree and shrub care. Um, and what they did was they had, um, as they're part of their hiring process, like one of the final steps was they did a ride along. They had the candidate come in and they spent a day, four hours, whatever it was, riding with an experienced technician. And what the candidate didn't know was um, that that technician had complete veto power over whether this person got hired or not. Mm. So it was just, how do you, how do you fit in? Um, and it became a thing um, like, does this person embody our company values? Like, are they going to be a good fit? Are they going to be a team player or are they really self-absorbed? Are they kind of a jerk? Are they not paying attention? Are they not trying to learn anything? Um, mm. what kind of values do, do they display? And so those technicians, and it became a thing, um, where if you got to do ride-alongs, if they, you know, um, the leadership of the company tapped you on the shoulder and said, Hey, you, you know, we got a candidate. We need you to do a ride along. That was a prestigious thing. Like you had power, mm -hmm. right? So they were rewarding those, those people that really embodied those values, not just with the, the, the bucks, but with, um, with a say in how the company grew mm. and the type of people that you brought in. Just how powerful is that? Like, who gives frontline workers the the, the authority <laughs> to say yes or no? Well, that's right. It, it's about building that culture, isn't it? It's about building that team mentality. You know, we mm -hmm. want to be like a great sporting team where everyone trusts each other and, you know, you have each other's back. We don't want to be like a bad sporting team where everyone's running off in their own direction and we've got everyone thinks that they're the star and everyone's trying to kick the goal and not pass to each other. Right, right. That's exactly right. And so I just thought it was a tremendous, tremendous, those are some examples that kind of stick out in my mind when you talked about um, really doing some things successfully to implement, implement a, a good workplace culture. I thought those were just amazing examples. So, What about examples for like a small landscape company? Maybe you haven't seen this because I know you've worked at a lot of larger companies, but can you give me a, a few examples of what someone who's maybe hiring three or four people can do? I'll give you a great example. I worked at a company, one of the, the first company I really cut my teeth in the industry and it was, it was bigger than, than, you know, your three or four. Okay. So it was, um, I don't want to say there was like 16 or 17 employees, mm, you know, but not a massive company. It wasn't a massive company. Right. Um, again, going back to understanding your people and how they work and, and wanting to meet them where they're at and, and just setting that tone for that culture. Actually, I'll give you two, two, two places, two examples. One, I worked my first two landscaping jobs. I worked one was a, uh, an American guy. He had, when, when I worked for him, he had two other uh, native Spanish speakers. Um, one was Honduran, one was Guatemalan that worked for him. Um, he couldn't speak a lick of Spanish. He was married to a Colombian woman 
And if he had disagreements with his employees throughout the day, he would literally call his wife, put it on speaker and be screaming into the phone. And then she's translating <laughs> it. I mean, it was just an absolute dumpster fire. It was terrible. Oh, nice. But contrast that with the second place I worked. Um, the very first day I showed up, I walk out. Um, I get out of my truck and I'm walking into the yard and the owner of the company is out walking around the yard, joking with his guys in Spanish. Yeah. Night and day. Night and day. Like he was out. He was with them. He was, did he work alongside them occasionally? Yeah. He, I mean, he didn't do that all the time because the company was, was much bigger. You know, you got 15, 16 employees. You, you have some more administrative things you have to take care of. But he took the trouble to learn how to communicate with them in a language that they were comfortable with. Like that's a, that's an even heavier lift, I think, than working alongside them in, in, you know, with a shovel. Um, so I think that was just a huge culture promoter, like just those little things. Like, you know, you, if you're going to, if you're going to be hiring, um, here's a good analogy for this. If you're going to be hiring Gen Z, you know, first of all, like I said, 85% of them aren't going to work there unless you put the salary in the, in the job description to do that. But when they come to work for you, like have some idea what they're talking about, what things interest them. Um, you know, maybe you're not like on TikTok all the time, but like you should be familiar with what it is. Maybe you're not familiar with all the the current um, pop stars in music, but you should have so, like you don't listen to their stuff, but you should have some idea who they are. Um, just learn to connect with the things that are important to them. Mm. If if they're into hiking, if they're into surfing, if they're into um, some kind of sport, like just find ways to connect with people, I think is, mm. is what I would say. If you don't have to be an expert at everything. In fact, that's a turnoff. Yes. hundred <laughs> percent. Yes. People hate the know-it-all and especially yes. in a boss. Like they want the boss who's going to come and joke about with them and, you know, maybe at the workplace, everyone's watching Rick and Morty and then there's a certain joke going through that workplace that morning. You got to learn what it is and then be a part of it. Just because you don't want to yes. be up there in your ivory tower where people are talking about you behind your back and they're just trying to get away with the most they can. You want to be out in front of them, out in the sunlight. Everything's out in daylight and everyone's having fun and it's positive and, yeah, you're not forcing people to go and huddle in the corner away from you. Yes, I I could not agree more. And and I think you can really – you if you're especially if you're the owner, if you're listening to this and you're an owner, it doesn't matter what size your company is – Anytime you put two people together, culture begins to form. Mm. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. People are going to find ways to interact with one another. And then when you add a third person, it's going to change slightly. And when you add, you are responsible. You have to be the on purpose, diligent, relentless steward of your company's culture. We should rename human resources, human ecology. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> Because <laughs> that's what it is. We're it's to about start the... a change right now, Daniel. You and I. <laughs> Let's do it because that's what it is. It's about the interactions between people and the environment. It isn't. A t it's a. It's a kind of ecology, workplace culture. It is. It is. And I actually got that. And I. I wish I could take credit for that. But that idea that that anywhere there's um, two people together, that's when culture begins to form. Um, there was a uh, uh, professor of sociology. Um, on the Harvard Business Review does a podcast called the Idea Cast. And um, 
he a cultural anthropologist is what he was. I'm sorry, not a sociologist. He's a cultural anthropologist. And he had spent decades studying um, native tribes in the Brazilian rainforests, like out in the brush, out in the bush, you know, like way far away mm-hmm. from civilization. And then when he left doing that, um, he immediately almost uh, transitioned into um, corporate culture. Right. That's a yeah, it's a fat. I'll send it to you, man. It's a fascinating <laughs> podcast. It's only like 25 minutes and it is like well worth a listen. But in that podcast, he posited that idea. He said, look, anytime you have two people together, three people together, culture forms, anytime people join together, they find their own rhythm, mm. um, their own way of communicating. And, and that has just really resonated with me. It's like, and I, and I've begun to realize that like, even on teams I work at. So at single ops, you know, I'm, um, we're a, uh, a landscape industry focused software. We help businesses run more effectively. Um, but I run, a, I work on the marketing team and I just realized I was like, wait, there's only three of us, but like we can set our own culture. We work remotely, mm-hmm. um, but we, but our, our job duties kind of overlap and we kind of, and so um, we just have this cadence now where we meet on a regular basis. And sometimes our meetings are super productive and it's like, Hey, I'm hung up on this. Um, and like a couple of weeks ago, one of my teammates was hung up on something and our 45 minute meeting went 90 minutes, but we knocked out his project. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes those meetings are us just sitting there laughing and making fun of each other. <laughs> yeah. Which is important. You cannot underestimate that because oh yeah, we're all going to die, man. We got to have fun at work. Exactly. We have, you have to have fun at work, but, but that culture is, is, um, we get to determine that. Mm. And I just, I refuse now. I think, I think I'm ruined after hearing that. It is profound, isn't it? It does. It's like a, a, a shift in thinking. Anytime when two people get together, a culture happens. Your marriage, your, your, your yeah. partnership, whatever. Oh my goodness. Our in jokes, no one would understand it. Like <laughs> right. they're just right. for us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My wife sent me a text today. She sent me something that if I even repeated it on here, like no one is going to understand. <laughs> even even if I, you know, your listeners in the US, the chances of them having watched this particular show and picking up on the reference, but it's a show that she and I watched together. We've watched the whole series probably twice. And we, she sent me this text and I just literally laughed out loud. I was like, that's really funny. But we have our own culture, right? Um, and I think that that's something that, um, you have to be so intentional, so deliberate, um, with how you said that, I, um, again, going back to the Harvard business review, um, there's an article that they did on workplace culture and the, the definition that they give is, um, culture defines what norms are, are, what, what are norms and like, what are abnorms, what things are tolerated and what things are rejected mm-hmm. in a workplace. And I'm like, yes, like you have to be intentional about stewarding that mm-hmm. you get to call those shots. You get to help. And actually, even as an employee, right, every single day, you get to decide when you go into work, what things you're going to tolerate, what things you're not going to tolerate. Mm. So like 100%. for me, uh, going back to that guy I worked with, who was this really high performing salesman, um, I just, I called him out on a lot of stuff. <laughs> Cause I was just like, I'm not going to tolerate. Like yeah. I, it is not okay for you to treat people that way in my presence. Brilliant. When I, when I walk in the room, um, the culture is going to change. That's a powerful statement. 
Yeah. Well, and and that's not because that's not because I'm anything special, but that's just because I've made that decision that that I, like anytime people begin to interact with one another, you can either be a part of what's already happening, you can change the dynamic slightly, or you can change the dynamic in in a in a significant way, and just using that for good, right? <laughs> like this is the way I want the world around me to be shaped, and not by force of will, but just by um, the courage to say the right mm. thing at the right time and like, making decisions. I can make a change there. So I'm going to do it. hundred mm-hmm. percent agree. And this actually brings me to another point. So I, I wanted to just ask, like, is this really only a subject for employers to think about or are employees also a part of this discussion? Like, is it upon them to contribute to workplace culture too? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Absolutely. Um, I worked, and again, I, I will probably get, so <laughs> uh, there's no way around it. I'm going <laughs> to, there, there are probably certain people I'm connected to on LinkedIn in the US here that are, they're going to dissever that connection after, if they listen to this, if they get this far <laughs> into the episode. Um, but I'll give you a good example. When, um, when I was in um, working at, I worked at one place in particular where <clears throat> it was a family run business. And, um, the owner's son and I were having a discussion and it was a discussion about a political figure and it was a discussion about the morality of that person's actions. Mm -hmm. And the, the conversation, um, went to this, this individual, um, the, the son said, well, what so-and-so did wasn't, you know wasn't illegal. Hmm. And I just looked at him and I said, does it matter? Hmm. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't get away with treating people that way in your family, in your home. Like your wife wouldn't put up with it. (laughs) Right. Like, does it matter? Does it matter if what they did was legal or not? It wasn't good. Hmm. It wasn't with an open heart and a, a good intention. It was a selfish act you're, talk, you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, for context, and again, this will probably <laughs> it was it was about Donald Trump. So I uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I I think there there's a very mixed bag when it comes to Donald Trump. I, there there are some things that he did that I agree with and think were really smart and forward thinking. Ninety eight percent of it, I think, is just absolute an embarrassment to the United States. But that's okay. I don't think Joe Biden's any better. Um, <laughs> I I knew we'd get there eventually on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When we get off the air, I'll have a, I have a funny story about Trump for you. I'll share. Um, uh, And about, and about his perception around the way he's damaged America's reputation. Um, (laughs) But I just, and I just said, and it was about, it was about um, Trump's infidelities, you know? And it was like, oh, well, he didn't do anything illegal. And I said, does it matter? you claim to be a person and this was a guy who, who claimed to have um, a strong faith in God. And I said, look, you wouldn't like, according to your faith and I am too, but I said, according to your faith, like that's not okay. That's not okay to treat people that way. It's not okay to be unfaithful to your spouse in that way. Um, your wife wouldn't put up with it. Like why, why is it okay for this person just because you like his politics? That doesn't make it okay. 
but the fact and it got into this really heated i mean like he and i were both like yelling at each other and i don't know later i had some, one of my and this was it happened in front of some of my team that i was supervising <laughs> and this guy worked in the business right so it's like i'm i'm yelling at the owner's son in the middle of this business and i just said oh my gosh and they they said to me that probably wasn't smart right you know like, yeah good way to put it too not to bash you up about it or anything like that just to be like hey man get your head in the game yeah and that's exactly what i said i was like i was just like put your put yourself in, like do you hear what you're saying i was like do you actually hear what you're saying right now mm. you might be right do you hear what you're saying the justifications you're making right now you might be 100% right and i just said so i and they were like well oh, it wasn't smart i was like well i just I had another situation at work one time where there was a, a place I worked. There was a bunch of, they had a, a bunch of layoffs and they were really unexpected. We thought the company was in good financial position and there was a bunch of layoffs and um, they were rolling this out to the team in a team meeting. And I could just sense that, that my coworkers were very like afraid, you know, everyone was freaking out. What happened? And I just said, I'm, and I'm, I'm nobody. I'm, I'm entry level. Like I supervise no one at this job, right? Like I am not, but I was just comfortable enough. And I just spoke up and I said, they were like, are there any questions? And I was just like, yeah, to the whole leadership team in front of the whole company. I was like, can you just be more careful with how you talk about it? These things to us, because we were under the impression things were really good. And I think there's a lot of people right now in this, you know, that, that are fearful. Um, I don't think you handled this well. And I had, I can't believe how many people at that company reached out to me afterwards and said, thank you for speaking up. Mm. You, you, you said exactly what I was thinking. I didn't, I w didn't feel they just fired all these people. I wasn't going to speak up and say anything. Yeah. Put my neck on the chopping block. Yeah. But, but again, I was just, I, me being a, a an entry level, low level, whatever. I just decided, that's not the place I want to work. Like I like the place I work and I don't want my coworkers to be afraid and I can see that they are. So I think that, I think that you're going back to your original question. Yes. Employees have a responsibility. They have a role in this. Um, they need to also be the relentless stewards of those, mm. of that culture. And it's not just right? uh, the way that they're dealing with the people beneath them or next to them. It's also, as you say, it's how you deal with the people above you on behalf of your coworkers. Yes. Yes. There are times. And now granted in that situation, I was not worried um, myself about my job and for a couple of reasons um, <laughs> I won't go into, but I just, I didn't feel like they were going to fire me for speaking up but I knew somebody had to because I could sense and it, it just, it just made, um, it didn't fix anything. It didn't change the situation. They didn't go, Oh, you're right. We really screwed this up. Let's go bring all these people back. Let's get them on the phone. But what it did do, um, was it helped my coworkers feel seen and understood? Like they, they, even if it wasn't it and, it, and they knew that someone anybody was going to say hard things to the to the leadership team that's how culture evolves yes it's these little yes. actions it's these decisions that we make as a group and then that affects it's just like introducing a new plant into an environment that will then affect the ecology forever after that yes yes 
but it's those it's those you know what are what are norms and what are deviations what is accepted and what is tol- you know what is tolerated and what is rejected and i just decided you know i don't want my co i reject my coworkers looking over their shoulder every second of the next month or whatever you know i don't want them to feel that way um so i think that yes employees have a and again this is not about me being these are just a couple because I don't feel comfortable sharing other people's stories about this, but I, I can tell you in my career, there have been times other people have done the same thing for me, you know, where like I had those fears and somebody else was the, was the voice that spoke up. We actually talked a lot about this in episode 131. They're not replaceable widgets, which is actually an episode featured from your podcast on the green industry perspectives. Do you remember which season and episode it was on your show? I believe, and I will double check this right now. Um, I believe it was season seven, episode eight, but let me go and check real quick. Uh, I, I don't know how you do that. Yep. I cannot remember episode numbers off the back of my hand. I, look, you've been doing this a lot longer. I've got two seasons under my belt. It's not uh, as hard for me. I see. Yeah. <laughs> I've got 20 episodes to think through. You've got hundreds. <laughs> but there are a lot more episodes on the show, but you've taken over recently as host. Correct. Yes. So... Um, yeah, so anything, you know, the only one, the other one that I know for a fact is, um, season two, episode one, cause that's when I was a guest on the podcast before oh. I started. <laughs> it's the only other one I remember. Yeah. That's it. Um, but yeah, so yeah, season, season seven, episode eight, they're not replaceable widgets on, uh, on the green industry perspectives mm-hmm. podcast, but, um, you have a much wider audience, much wider listenership. So by all means, if, uh, you know, please go ahead and, and plug yours, um, I just want the ideas getting out there. I want people to hear the conversations and begin to think about it and for the companies that they're working in to begin to improve and, and attract better candidates and have better longevity. Um, that's, that's what gets me up in the morning, man. So. That's it. And look, this podcast really is about the workers and this episode's a bit of a break from tradition and it really kind of is aimed toward employers but if you are mm-hmm. an employer and you've listened this far and this is engaging for you, I do urge you to go and check out the Green Industry Perspectives podcast because it actually is more aimed towards business owners. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate the plug, man. Well, just off the back of that, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? This is another chance to plug or recommend a change in the world <laughs> or doesn't have to be on topic, can be anything. Oh, can be anything, wow. Anything. Right. You can talk about ballet if you want to. <laughs> Um, I would just say if you're listening to this and and you're an owner, um, feel free to reach out to me with the questions. Um, Daniel, you can put my contact information in the show notes. Um, if you're listening in the U S or Canada and you want a demo of single ops, we'll gladly set one up for you. I know nothing about the software. So just reach out to me and I can put you in touch with the right person. (laughs) Well, can you tell us what does, what does the software do? I can tell you that, yes. Um, I don't know how to run a demo, but I can tell you what the software does. The software, um, Single Ops, um, is an end-to-end business management software. So if you run a residential or commercial landscape business, you can enter customer information, um, schedule a time for an estimator to go out. They can make a proposal on the spot, email it to the client, or you know, if they get back to their office, they can do it later, whenever. But it, it, it's that powerful. It's all cloud-based, so you can do it anywhere you have an internet connection. Um, you can make a proposal on the spot, email it to the client, offer the client financing in the app. So if wow. they're putting in a patio, that's a game changer. You know, then it's going to be a thirty thousand dollar job. They can get financing within minutes. Um, 
yeah, so they can they can do that. Um, accept the job. It immediately goes to the scheduler, generates work orders for the crew. The crew can actually clock in and out using timesheets right there. There's GPS integration, so you can see where your equipment and trucks are at all times, and uh, you can get paid. And it reconciles with your QuickBooks all in one place. So it is actually pretty powerful. It's a pretty cool. It's a pretty cool. There's a reason I work here. I think it's a, I think it's a really revolutionary product. Totally. Is there also the availability for, you know, workers like say me as a team leader out there in the field, would I just be writing notes in that app and then the, the business owner can also have access to those job notes? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So the, the crew can, there, there's a section for crew notes that only the crew sees. Um, and I, I'd have to double check truthfully if they can add new notes. Um, but there's mapping features and all this stuff too. So, I mean, like you can even, you can even designate like you can make take out any ambiguity for the crew. So it was originally designed for um, tree care professionals, um, you know, arborists, but um, it works really well for full surface landscapers as well. But you can literally put push bins on a map like, okay, this uh, oak tree is the one coming down. The two maples in the back just need pruned. Here in this box over here on the left side of the house, this is where you're supposed to park the truck because it's off the main road. Brilliant. Um, and you can color code all of it too. So like removals are red, you know, whatever color you designate. You know, let's just say you want to make removals red, pruning green, and where you park the truck is purple. And you can, so whatever you standardize within your company, your team can see all of that right away. That is brilliant. <clears throat> it is pretty cool. It's a really cool, if you want to see a demo sometime, Daniel, I'll get you one, but yeah. Um, is it in Australia better. or just in the US and Canada at the moment? <clears throat> US and Canada for now, which is a shame because I'm connected with a lot of people in England Yeah, for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> so am I. I'm connected I don't know with why people I've got a lot of UK world. connections. Yeah. Well, it, can you believe that people are still running businesses using, you know, pen and paper timesheets and job notes and stuff like that? Uh, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> We see it every single day, multiple times a day. You know, we'll get a, a new customer that's interested in the software and we have a certain criteria. We try to equip um, whoever um, is going to be presenting the software to them. So that way they know, um, not that they're manipulative with it, but they know what the pain points are, right? Like, how can we provide a solution? Is this a good solution for them? Um, and you'd be amazed at the number of companies that come in and, um, I even have a consulting client um, that I, I did some private consulting with um, recently in the last year or so, and they're scheduling all their work. It's twenty. It was 2022. They're scheduling all their work in um, on whiteboards. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's 2023 it's, now, but yeah. Yeah. Well, that's when I, last year when I was out there um, consulting with them. Yeah. And they're still scheduling their work that way. So I just, um, yeah, I believe it. <laughs> and I, I get if you're at a certain size, right? <clears throat> and you think, oh, well, I can't. Look, you don't need to use single ops. I, I want you to use single ops, but you don't need to use single ops. Um, there's, if you've got like a company, let's say it's five or, or six employees or, or fewer, including you, you're an owner operator. There's a great software called Yardbooks. You're going to outgrow it once you get to 10 employees, but find something, right? There, there are other alternatives. Um that, that are maybe uh, a little bit more cost effective than yeah, and Yardbooks is free by the way, it's a free version. Um, there are other um, competitors that are probably a less expensive, um, you know, price point than single ops. Are they going to have all the functionality? I don't believe so. But is using something better than 
using sticky notes or just Microsoft Excel, yes, yes, something, anything else will help you with the scheduling um, that's designed for it. So um, start somewhere and as your business grows and maybe that's not a good fit, maybe you end up changing software a handful of times. Is it a pain? It can be. Um, is it necessary to grow your business? Yeah, yeah, it really is. Like you're overtaxed as a business owner. You're not gonna remember everything. So let, let, let the, let, that's what the software is there for. Let it do it for you. Let it remember those things for you. Um, help you schedule those things. So that's my take. Um, yes, I would like you to use single ops. Single ops is, I think, world-class. And our, and our support team is actually world-class. You know, for software, there is a, um, the average response time considered industry standard um, is, I think, within 36 hours or 24 hours, something like that is for, for software in general, like, you know, 24 hour response time is, well, look, especially in the spring when things are moving, like you need, you need whatever's wrong with your software fixed right away. Yes. Um, <laughs> you're trying to schedule all your work in there and whatever. Yeah. Um, our, our response time is on average about four hours to, to resolve time to res time to resolution is about four hours. Um, that's world-class by any standard. So, um, yeah, we, I think, I believe in the product. I think it's really good. I think the team that we've got is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, as we talked about culture, single ops has just a tremendous company culture where people are respected and valued, um, more than just about any place I've ever worked. So, um, yeah, I want you to use single ops cause I believe in the product and I believe in the people that work here. So, but use something, use something. That's it. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, Jake. Great episode, man. Hey, yeah, it was just a lot of fun, man. Culture's more than just words and promises. It's real world nuts and bolts stuff that requires your emotional labor to get right. As always, check the show notes where you'll find links to listen to the Green Industry Perspectives podcast and check out the single ops software. If you're an employer looking for staff in the Australian horticulture and landscape industry, make sure you post your job to hortpeople.com, which is our industry's online job board. Passionate plant people, including listeners of this show, are waiting to apply.